Let me first of all just say, <laughs> you all are at a disadvantage when it comes to singing these songs that we sing compared to me. Because I've been preparing all week in this message, and these songs were so pertinent to this message. And David didn't choose them. David uh, and Amanda and Hannah delivered them very, very well. I appreciate that. Um, But I'm just singing these songs thinking, wow, wow. I mean, y'all have no idea. Hopefully you do by the time we finish this evening. Um, But just very, very providentially chosen. Let's just say it that way. Speaking of providence, welcome. Um, Let me ask you a question. How many of you enjoy a good story? I think just about everybody does, I think. Um, And stories come in different forms, of course. Books, movies, plays, operas. Anybody ever been to an opera? I've not. A little bit of opera goes a long way, is what Bruce Wayne's dad said. So, uh, But anyway, stories communicate to us in ways better, I think, than just presenting facts. I could lay up some facts and you know give you a list and read them off, and you're like, okay, good facts. But <clears throat> when you tell them in a story, they just communicate so well. And when you combine the facts with the use of well-developed characters who weave their way through intrigue and danger and humor and twists and turns until after some dramatic turn of events, the hero comes in seemingly too late and saves the day and everybody lives happily ever after. Now, we are movie people in the Moore family, okay? We watch a lot of movies, for good or for ill. We watched a movie last night, I won't tell you what it was, but it was like an hour and a half long panic attack, okay? It was like, I got done and my chest was hurt. And I'm like, I don't ever want to see this movie again. I kid you not. Uh, but, but we watch a lot of movies, and it's been so for me since my youth. My sister and I, we watched movies all the time. We had to record them on VCR tapes. Some of y'all don't know what those are. <clears throat> but, uh, and then we'd rewind and play our favorite parts over and over again. And there were times we would watch some of these movies weekly. We'd watch the same movie every week. Just how we are, okay? We liked it. Uh, Comedies, dramas, action, mystery, so many options. And it seems to be that the best stories in movies are based on what? Actual events. They're true stories, real life happenings. Fiction is great. I love fiction. But true stories, actual accounts that take us on the road to actually living a situation that somebody walked through, to me, are just top-notch. Well, what we're starting in this evening, almost said morning, just because it's habit. Uh, it's weird to be here in the evening, by the way. What we're starting in today is just one such true account as we begin our study in Esther. When you read the book of Esther, it's like watching a great movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's well-written, <clears throat> it's the characters are developed pretty well. The plot has twists and turns. And so as we come to Esther, we find ourselves historically in the section of time between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, which is why we're starting Esther, because we finished Ezra 6 last week. Okay, So time frame-wise, we're right there in between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. 
We've seen God work through and on behalf of the Jews who had come back from exile from Babylon under the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia. And then we saw them prosper and finish the work on God's temple under Darius I, who was also a Persian king and the son of Cyrus. And we left them the last time we met them, which was two weeks ago. Last week was the Christmas message. We left them, these Jews who had returned from exile to build the temple, celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem as God's people for the first time in a century. And what I said at the end of that message was, note where they're at because life was good. Hard, they were still in a tattered city, but the temple was rebuilt and religious order had been reestablished. And they had finished the work on the temple and they celebrated their first Passover there. So life was good for them. But now the question is, what happens next in the story for the Jews? We've met Zerubbabel, who was the governor of the Jews back in Jerusalem. We've met Joshua, who was the high priest. We've met Haggai and Zechariah, who were prophets back in Jerusalem. But what I want to present to you this evening is, who are the characters in our story here in Esther? Today we're going to meet one of the most important players in the high drama historical event and how this person fits into the story. And we're going to see somebody else that fits in the story as well. But we're going to see some Jews who are not back in Jerusalem. They're living in Susa, which is the capital of Persia. And we're going to meet the big players, some of the big players today. So let's dig in. I'm going to read the whole chapter, the first chapter of Esther. <clears throat> if you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to be in Esther 1. If not, it'll be up here on the screen. You can follow along there. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, the very words of God for the people of God. <clears throat> now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces... In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men, to him, the men next to him being Karshina, 
Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marsena, and Mimikon, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimikan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimikan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its town, script in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. God, you are a fantastic storyteller. And we thank you that you've recorded this historical account for our encouragement, for our strengthening, for our reproof and correction, training in righteousness. Speak, O Lord, through your word, by the power of your spirit to your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to jump right in here in verses 1 and 2. And we will make it through the whole chapter tonight, Lord willing. And I don't think it'll take me till midnight. I don't think we'll have to ring in the new year that way. So, Yeah, we'll get it done this year for sure. So, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Let's just stop there, okay? That's verses 1 and 2. So, really quickly, we meet one of our main characters, Okay? We meet our first person in this drama in the sixth word of the book, Ahasuerus. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, some people say Ahasuerus, that's a little too hard, okay? We'd be here all night if I said Ahasuerus every time, so. Who is this Ahasuerus? Who is this guy? Well, here in the text, it says that he is the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, let me expand on that for you a little. We've already said in past studies that the Jews were ruled over by the Assyrians who took the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And then the Babylonians ruled over the Jews and the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians and then conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Well, the Persians conquered the Babylonians while the Jews were in exile in Babylon. So, Ezra opened with the exiled Jews living under Persian rule under Cyrus who was the leader of the Persian Empire at that time. The Persian Empire continued to expand during Cyrus' rule, and under Cyrus' successor, Darius, who we also saw in Ezra, when Darius came to be, and under Darius, Persia came to be the largest known kingdom in history to that point. This is a big deal, okay? Here in Esther, it says that the Persian Empire, now ruled by Ahasuerus, who was Darius' son, that this kingdom was from Ethiopia in the west 
to India in the east. Let me show you what that looks like. Here you go. Here's a little visual, if it'll work. There it is. <clears throat> that weird burnt orange color is the Persian Empire. So you're down in Africa, and you're over next to India. Now, that's about the size of the United States, okay? And that was pretty much the known world at the time. That's a big deal. And you've got somebody here who's reigning over this kingdom with power, with an iron fist. This guy is hardcore. I want you to know that about Ahasuerus, okay? So you see he goes all the way west. You see Greece, though? Greece would become a thorn in, in Persia's side. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So, so we go from Africa to India. Uh, this was pretty much the known world, minus Greece. Now, inter interestingly enough, the Persians would march on Greece somewhere between chapters 1 and 2 of Esther and be defeated at the Battle of Thermopylae. Anybody ever heard of Thermopylae? <clears throat> yeah, if, you may know from the movie 300 if you're not a Christian and watch that kind of thing. But, uh, or if you read history. Uh, the Greeks would end up taking over the Persian Empire later after the Persian-Greek Wars. But here in Esther we see a Hasherus reigning, which would put us in a time period of 485 to 465 B.C., because that's when Ahasuerus reigned. Now, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew version of his name, and one commentator said that the writer used this name because it sounded like the Hebrew name for headache. So when it was read, it sounded like they were calling him King Headache, which would add to the drama and humor of the story for the hearers. Now, let's get something straight here. The Jews loved story too. Okay, And what you'll see through this book is that they, they start a feast that they would call Purim and they read the book of Esther aloud. And it's very entertaining to them. They give the kids rattlers so that when they say the bad guy's name, they shake these rattlers and they say boo and hiss and all that kind of stuff. So when they're reading about King Headache, the, the verbal part of it is just cracking them up. They're like, oh, King Headache, yeah. So it adds to the drama and humor. So King Ahasuerus' Greek name is one that you may be more familiar with. It's Xerxes. X-E-R-X-E-S. Now, if you've got a name that's got two X's in it, you are cool, okay? You're awesome. <clears throat> so here's King Xerxes, King Headache, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. So Ahasuerus equals Xerxes, and I will use them interchangeably through the message. So keep that in mind, okay? Xerxes is his Greek name. And let's just say, let's just set him, let, let's meet him. And I want, well, what a, first thing that I want you to know about him is he's a palace brat. Okay? He grew up in the palace. He never went to war. He never had to work a day in his life. His daddy was the king, and he became king after his daddy. Okay? So, what kind of person do you think he was? Do you think he was kind? Do you think he was gentle? No, this guy was a pain in the neck. Everything went his way or he blew his top. And you'll see that all through the book, okay? So he's a palace brat. Xerxes, the palace brat. He grew King Headache, the palace brat. He grew up in a palace, never having to go to war or work or do anything unprincely. And while that may put him in a pampered light, which would be right, you need to understand that this guy Xerxes is a really big deal. There is no bigger deal on the earth at this time than King Xerxes. If you walked in front of him, you bowed. If you stepped onto his carpet, you bowed or you died. Period. So we can kind of make fun of him, call him King Headache, but they didn't do that to his face. 
And they paid homage and honor to him because he was the king of kings at that time. There was nobody higher in the world in pomp and power than King Xerxes. He was glorious. He is the king and leader of the largest kingdom that the world of that time had ever known. He is majestic and powerful and people cowered before him. He had the power of life and death in his words. Die, live. You're getting on my nerves, you die. That's how this man operated. And everybody knew it. He was the very picture of wealth and power and majesty. And he's the first person we meet in our story. Verse 2 says he was sitting on his royal throne in Susa, which would have been his winter palace and capital, by the way. History says that at this time Persia had four capitals, and the king would move from one to the other from season to season, so he would always have good weather. He was pampered, and he was powerful. Now you can see Susa on the map if you look there. I don't know if you can, I don't know if you can make that out or not. It's down near the Arabian Peninsula. It's the red dot there, just to the bottom left of the word Persia. So that puts us in modern-day Iran, just so you can kind of get a geographical context where Susa is. Now, verses 3 and 4. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. Now you want to know how big a deal this guy Xerxes is? It says he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, including the army, the nobles, and the governors. And it wasn't just a meal. It wasn't just a party. It was a hundred and eighty days long. Now, if you're math impaired like I am, Let me break it down. Six months! Six months he holds a feast to show his pomp and his glory and his splendor and his greatness. So he is saying, I am a really big deal. I am glorious. And how glorious am I? I'm going to throw a six month long party just so y'all can come and look at all of my stuff. Anybody ever been to a six-month-long party? Some of you feel like you've been part of that, maybe. Okay. 180 days. Six months of feasting, revelry, and Xerxes showing the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Put simply, this guy was a really big deal and he wanted everybody to see it and know it. He throws a six-month party. Now, I've been off work the last week, and it's been really good. It's been really nice, okay? Now, can you imagine being off for six months? And not just being off for six months, but being with the king and eating and drinking what he provided. And I'm sure they weren't just eating and drinking, by the way. There were other things going on there. The Persians were known for their harems. Dude was showing off... And these army and governmental people were the recipients of all this lavish showing off. Now that's feast one mentioned in the books. Big things happen at feasts in this book. Keep keep that in your mind. Okay, When you see a feast, something's going on. Now let's look at verses 5 through 8. And when these days were completed, these 180 days... 
the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So now we've moved from the army and the governor's feast, which was six months long, to all the people present in Susa. Now Susa was a capital city. I don't know how many people were there. Very, very safe estimates, very conservative estimates say at least 15,000. Probably much more than that. Okay, Everybody that was around in Susa, great and small, King says, come to my palace, look at all my stuff for seven days. Now that seven days may have been the conclusion of the 180 days. It may have been an addition to the 180 days. It says when these days are concluded. It doesn't really matter. So either this thing was 180 days long total or 187 days total. Okay, big deal. What's an extra week, right? After six months? But it seems that these commoners, everybody, everybody, got to join in for the last seven days of this great feast. Xerxes just opened it up to whoever was around and wanted to come so that they too could come see his glorious splendor. And again, this is about him saying, look at my stuff, look how awesome I am. Great and small, come one, come all. And what did they see when they came into the king's garden? Things they had surely never seen before. White cotton curtains. You're like, okay, big deal. Well, white cotton curtains, no big deal. Violet hangings. Now, violet hangings should should perk our ears up because only the wealthy people had purple stuff. It was a royal color because it was very expensive to obtain. Anybody ever heard of a lady named Lydia in the book of Acts? What did she do? She was a seller of purple goods. And she kind of bankrolled Paul for a little while. She was very wealthy. She had a summer and a winter house. So she sold purple stuff, and it made her rich. And I just tell you that because it shows that only rich people had purple things. Well, what did he have? He had purple stuff, right? Some of these commoners probably had never seen purple stuff, unless the king went by in his retinue or something. Okay? So they were probably amazed at the purple stuff, but that's not all. There weren't just violet hangings. There were linens and purple cords on silver rods and marble pillars. And then this. Now get out of this. Couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of precious stones identified as porphyry, which is a purple stone, by the way. Marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Now can you imagine? Gold and silver couches on a mosaic pavement of multicolored precious stones. Some of y'all might have fancy couches, but ain't none of y'all got gold and silver couches on mosaic pavement of multicolored precious stones. Ain't none of y'all that cool. Xerxes was showing his wealth, and people were surely mesmerized. And what else did they see? Drinks were served in golden vessels. Anybody got a golden vessel for their coffee this evening? Huh? We got the solo cup show, right? We broke out the good stuff for the New Year's Eve party. 
golden vessels and vessels of other kinds too. You don't want gold? Well, maybe we could get you silver. Silver is kind of cheap, but hey. People were mesmerized. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Now, he didn't give them the box wine, right? If you know what box wine is, you're not a Christian, but it's all right. I'm just playing with you all. This was the king's wine, y'all. The royal wine. And it was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Drinks served in gold cups and different kinds of cups. And we're not talking about big K cola, but the royal wine. The good stuff. Lavished according to the bounty of the king. And then to make it even more official, they passed a law. An edict that said there's no compulsion, which means this, drink when you want, how you want, as much as you want. There are no rules. Seven days of drinking. The good stuff. The stuff that gets you messed up drunk. Seven days. Go crazy. Mark Driscoll compared this to a wedding reception with an open bar, but for a full week. Anybody ever been to an open bar wedding? People get stupid. I ain't kidding you. People fight. The bride's crying. That's what Mark Driscoll said. The bride's crying. Everybody's because of an open bar. Can you imagine an open bar for a week? A week. And some of these guys have been drinking for six months. Okay? I think I may have seen a small glimpse of this at Jamboree in the Hills. Anybody ever been to Jamboree in the Hills? Up in St. Clairsville, Ohio, up near Wharton. But not Wharton down here in Boone County. Wharton up north in Still Country. They, they have this week, well, it's not a week, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's a country music festival. <clears throat> and they have big names. Back, back when I went, back in the late 90s, I mean, it was Faith Hill, it was uh, Merle Haggard, thank you very much, uh, Clint Black. I mean, it was, it was everybody who was anybody in the country music scene, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Well, people would pull their campers and stuff up there, and they would drink all week long. And like... Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, before the concert, people are up there just drinking. And by the time the concerts start on like Thursday, people are pickled. I mean, they're, they're seriously like doused in the alcohol. And let me tell you what, they're annoying. Yeah. You ever been around somebody that's been drinking for a week? Mm-hmm. Some of you are like, I grew up with a guy who drank all the time, and I'm sorry for that. My buddy and I went the first time and we left before the music started because it was, it was too hard to take. Next year came and they had a really good lineup again. We tried to go again. And we stayed for a little bit and we left. Well, then my wife and I got married. And we got the lineup. And Merle Haggard and Mary Chapin Carpenter were the same night. That was my favorite and her favorite. I'm like, let's give it a shot. Bad idea. We left and she was weeping uh, before very many people had played much music. Because all these idiots had been drinking for a week. And you couldn't stand to be around them. These folks had been drinking for a week. Some of them had been drinking for six months. Six months. And you can be sure it wasn't just alcohol that was being abused. And there at the end of verse 8 it says that the king had given orders to his palace staff that each man could do as he desired. And I cannot imagine the debauchery that was taking place in Susa over this six month and this one week period. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. 
So while the men were partying and feasting, our second big character is introduced, Queen Vashti. So we've met King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, and now we meet Queen Vashti. And she's giving a feast for the women in the palace. What's good for the goose, right? So Queen Vashti, she's going to be a big part of this story early on. What happens to her? Look at verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, so this is the end. This is the end of the week, okay? When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded these guys, I'm not going to do that again, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the palace brat King Headache became enraged and his anger burned within him. So this mighty and glorious King Xerxes is married with wine after six months. And he sends his eunuchs to bring his wife, the queen, to him so that he could show off her beauty as part of his glory and might to everybody. He's all snot-faced and he's like, Hey guys, my wife is hot! (laughs) Show them her! She's pretty! Y'all can look at her if you want. She's hot. And then that first word in verse 12. But. Uh Uh-oh. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. Why? Don't know. Some people say that, you know, when he commanded her to come in her crown, that he was saying only in her crown. It's a possibility. Don't know. Maybe she was tired from hosting a party. Maybe she had a headache. You know, I don't know. I don't know what was going on. He said come and she said no. And he's not very happy. She said no and shut him down. And this all-powerful, all-glorious King Xerxes was defeated, rejected, and embarrassed by a woman of all things. He could rule 127 provinces, but he couldn't control one little old lady. And how did he receive this news? Like history tells us that he received any bad news. He became enraged and his anger burned within him. He was a drunk hothead and he let everybody know it. You do not tell the king no. He is the ultimate authority and is to get what he wants when he wants. Four palaces, an army at his command, and the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth. They all agreed. But Queen Vashti did not. And that's going to cause some problems. How will the king handle it? Verses 13 through 18. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Mimikin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face. That's a big deal if you see the king's face, you're in front of him all the time, and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. 
I didn't do that in a female voice, by the way. I think I'd get in trouble for that. This very day, the noble women of Persia and media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Now, just real quick, so you know, when it says the seven princes of Persia and media, the Medes were a people in the Persian Empire that had been absorbed through all the empires as they expanded. And sometimes the Persian Empire was called the Medo-Persian Empire. So when you see Medes, that's what it's talking about. So anyway, Xerxes calls his seven princes together to find out what he should do to his wife who wouldn't come when he called her. (laughs) Now, can you imagine this? I mean, really, a full-on cabinet meeting at the palace because the wife had a headache or something. Now, can you see Trump doing something like this? Seriously. I mean, really? Huh? Yeah. We're going to have a meeting. <clears throat> so, it's going to be the best meeting you've ever seen. Okay, we won't go there. Xerxes was a big deal, and he was not to be refused, and he was going to make it official. So, what's to be done, he asks. So, many can. One of the princes gives a thoughtful speech saying, if other women hear of this, men everywhere might get disrespected by their wives and the whole kingdom will be full of contemptuous women refusing their husbands and we can't have that. And he comes to a conclusion saying, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. <laughs> These guys were drunk. <laughs> I mean, they were nasty drunk. And they're freaking out, she's not coming. <laughs> it seems kind of pathetic to me. A bunch of six-month drunks. What are we going to do? I don't know. What are we going to do? <laughs> okay, so 19 through 22. And Mimi Kan says this. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes and the king did as Mimikan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. (laughs) This is great. This is wonderful, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> and we say amen, right? Now, this is a pretty important part to see here. Mimikan says that the king should make a royal order, and it is to be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, and then this part, so that it may not be repealed. When the king made a royal order, it could not be taken back or undone. If a royal order was made that all people had come to Susa... If, 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 if the king put out an order saying everybody's got to come to Susa once a year, well then from then until the empire died, people would have to come to Susa once a year. Nobody could undo that edict. Not the next king, nobody. The way that the Persians and the Medes worked was if a king made an edict, it could not be repealed. Now we don't get that here in America because we have eight years of somebody and then the the next administration comes in and starts undoing everything that that last president did, right? We're seeing it now, thank God. Okay? And then when this administration is gone, whoever comes in behind him will start undoing everything he's done. Not so with the Medes and Persians. If an edict was made, it was never to be repealed. It could never be undone. And you've got to catch that because that's a big deal in this story. Okay? 
It's a royal order. Let it be written according to the laws of the Medes and Persians. Medes and Persians. Persians and Medes, so that it may not be repealed. Okay? Next king couldn't come in and say, no, you don't have to do that anymore. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. And just keep that in mind. Note that it's going to be important in our study of Esther and it's going to be very pivotal. So what order does Mimikam propose? That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and they are to find someone to replace her. Someone better than she was. Which means somebody who will obey the king so that women will honor their husbands when they see how Vashti was punished for her insubordination and husbands all through the kingdom will be honored. Sandwiches will be made. Slippers will be brought. And the king likes it. And he makes the order and sends it out through the kingdom via their excellent postal service. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago too. The Medes and the Persians started the postal service. And it's called a postal service because they had posts every 15 miles where fresh horses could be gotten. Okay, So he sends this out via the postal service in everybody's own language. And he gets it to the ends of the kingdom quickly. And husbands from Africa to India are pleased and honored. Yay, right? So that sets us up for a search for a queen, which we'll see next week as we meet more of the main players in this real-life drama. But, for now, the question is, how do we apply this chapter of God's inspired Word? To tell you the truth, it's really difficult. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, we meet Xerxes, we meet his princes and eunuchs and Queen Vashti as those of importance in the story in chapter 1. Now, who didn't we hear from? We didn't, well, we didn't hear from Esther. We'll hear from her next week. But we also didn't hear from God. Right? Anybody mention God in all this? We're talking about pagans here. We're talking about six-month drunk pagans. Not one time do we see or hear from or about God in this chapter. Nobody prays. Nobody observes God's law. Nobody has any restraint from God. At all. And if you didn't know this before, it may shock you to hear that the book of Esther never mentions God. Not one time is the the name of God brought up in this book. Zero. None. Neither is prayer. Neither is the law of Moses. Neither is any other biblical text up to this point. The New Testament quotes Esther exactly zero times. So when looking for application in a passage, how do we apply anything from a story of a power-mad drunk king who's having a six-month-long party to show his glory and gets showed up by a defiant wife and thereby removes her from being queen and shouts it to the whole kingdom so that every woman in the kingdom will be scared to disrespect their husband? How do you find application in that? It's kind of hard. Because the point of the passage is not that wives should respect their husbands. If you hear a message on Esther 1 and it's saying, wives respect your husbands, they're wrong. (laughs) Now that's in the Bible. We know that's in the Bible, but not here. So I could have went that route. Wives, you should respect your husbands. No, no, we can't do that because that's not the point of the book. That's not the point of this passage. Why would the writer write this book? Why would we consider this inspired part of our Bible and look at it and say, well, this is just a story about a drunk guy who got embarrassed in front of his buddies. So this is not about wives respecting their husband. So that's out as application. How about, I know, don't drink wine to excess. That's a good one. 
Not the point of the passage. That's in, the, that's in Scriptures, but not here. I mean, it's showing them looking like fools. King Headache has got a headache. So does his wife, obviously. <laughs> so what about don't drink wine to excess? Well, that's surely there, but it's not the point of the chapter either. So what is? What's this about and why is it in the Bible? The main application for this chapter today and for the book of Esther as a whole is this. The providence of God. Providence. We like that word, right? Huh? We've heard that a couple times. You don't see the hand of God appear to Xerxes when he's drinking wine like we saw in the book of Daniel, if you've read that. The the literal hand of God comes down and writes on the wall to tell them, hey, this is going to get bad for you real quick and it's surely going to happen. We don't see miracles here. You don't see God at all here. But the point is, He is the one working in and through all the characters, all the settings, and all the situations of this book to accomplish His will. He then, in our movie analogy from earlier, is the director and the writer. He wrote and directed this thing, okay? The actors play their parts, but it's the vision of the director that determines how the movie plays out. Who wins the Oscar if a movie gets Best Picture? The director gets the Oscar. Now, they never use his name, the director, and he never appears in the plot line, but he is the one behind the camera giving direction to everything and everyone around him, and things go as he determines. Listen to me. God is in control of what is going on in Esther, even when we don't see direct intervention that would implicate him. That's providence. Let me, let me define providence for you. Okay? The providence of God is defined as, quote, that preservation, care, and government which God exercises over all things that He has created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which they were created. I'm going to read that again. Listen, okay? Come on, screw your your thinking caps on real tight. I'm going to read that again. Listen, this is crazy important as we study this book. Providence is defined as that preservation care and government which God exercises over all things that He has created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which they were created. End of quote. Now, you want a simpler version, kids? Here you go. Let me tell you what providence is. You ready? When when your mom and dad ask you what providence is, this is what you can tell them. J. Vernon McGee puts it very clear and simple. And he says, Providence means that the hand of God is in the glove of human events. The hand of God is in the glove of human events. It doesn't appear miraculous or majestic, but God is providentially working to bring all things together to accomplish the ends for which they were created. And that includes debased kings and six-month drinking parties and a wife who says no to her husband when he asks her to come. Yes, even these unsaved, non-people of God are being used to bring about the design of God in His world, His story, ultimately for His purpose. Queen Vashti is removed from being queen, and Xerxes now goes looking for a new queen, and that sets things up for a girl named Esther, an obscure Jewish girl living in Susa to become queen. And that's going to be real important. Because there's going to be things that happen in this book where the people of God need a spokesperson and they've got the queen there. 
That's providence. So our application point, and there's only one, is this. Trust in God's providence. In all things. In things that don't look like they make sense to us. In things that look like they're out of control. In things where it seems that sinful man is driving the car. When it looks like madmen are the stars of the show. Ultimately, they are all bit players doing what the director, capital D director, has ordained for them to do so the movie ends according to His design. So does that mean that God tells people to sin? No. It means that He is sovereign even over their sinful choices and actions. God does not cause people to sin. James 1. 12 through 14. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God promises that some... Some will receive the crown of life. That's what we saw back in verse 12, sorry. And he will achieve that end. God's going to give the crown of life to some people. When sin comes in the midst of all this, it is our own desires that take us there. But even when sin comes and we're lured away, God's end will be accomplished. And it will be accomplished by His sovereignty, His power, His promises, His glory, and His providence. He uses all means at His disposal, including the mundane and the everyday. He uses the holy and the common. He uses the sinners and the saints. So when it looks like things are out of control or that the plan has failed, take heart, Christian. God is providentially working to bring His promises to fulfillment. What promises? How about this one? I've got a few here. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You ever felt like God forsook you? You ever felt like God had left you? God promises He will never leave you nor forsake you. And through providence, He will not. How about this one? And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ. You ever feel like you've just gotten too far away from God and He's given up on you? He has not. He has started a good work in you, Christian, and He will bring it to completion through His providence. He will. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Has God forsaken His people? Has He left them to their own devices? He has not. He is with the church always, even to the end of the age. This is a good one. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Can you lose your salvation? Nope. If you could, you would, and I ain't a bit scared to say that God has not destined us for wrath as believers. He has destined us to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has destined us. 
predestined us for that. And through providence, through, the, through faith in the promises of a providential and sovereign God, we can trust that it's going to happen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, He will surely do it! You want to be a little better in 2018 than you were in 2017? He will surely do it. He will surely do it. I don't know, man. It's been pretty rough. I've not been very nice. I've not been very good. God's probably a little bit mad with me. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, falling away, And to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Now look at that again. Are you able to do this? No! Is God able to do this? Listen. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And that means falling away. I don't know why this is a weird path to go down here, but I want you to see these promises of God. You can't fall away from Him. He's got you. He is able to keep you from stumbling, and He is able to present you blameless. (laughs) Blameless before the presence of His glory. With great joy. He's not Xerxes. He's not up there waiting to zap us with a lightning bolt if we cross his path and don't say the right thing, do the right thing, feel the right thing. You better be better in 2018 than you were in 2017, boy, or I'm going to get you. I'm looking. I'm watching. You think Santa Claus don't sleep, huh? I know what you're thinking. And if you think the wrong thing, I'm going to zap you. That's not our God. He ain't Xerxes. He is going to present you blameless, Christian, before the presence of His glory. That's fantastic. But with great joy. I don't know what your opinion of God is. I don't know what your picture of God is, but I'm afraid too many times, our opinion of God, we think He is Xerxes. A power-mad old man who just wants to punish us for everything bad that we do. Who just wants to see heads roll. It's not our God. It's not our God. And He is providentially working so that all of these promises that we just read and many more will come to fulfillment. Now you got to know this, right? And we know that for those who love God, providence, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Amen. Buddy, when you get in the boat, you're already at the next shore. Because of who He is and because of what He has done. And He is causing all things to work together for your good. 
It doesn't always look like that. It doesn't always feel like that. That's when we trust in the providence of God. And we say, God, I trust that you are causing all things to work together for my good. Even this bad thing that is really hard and has been dragging on and dragging on and dragging on and I feel like I'm never going to get through it. You are going to bring this to completion and it's going to be for my good. That makes you bulletproof. When you know and trust the providence of God and that He's causing all these things to come together for one purpose, which is our good and His glory. And those are the same. You say you, just, you said the same purpose and you said two things. It's the same thing. Because He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with Him. He gives good gifts, right? Amen. Why? So that we can give Him glory for it. And so when He causes all things to work together for our good, we give Him glory. And that's the goal for all of it anyway. In His providence through everyday means... God is bringing all of history and creation to a final climax in which therefore God has highly exalted Christ, that's the hymn here, and bestowed on Christ the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your job your home, your fun, your pain. God is causing all of these to work together for your good so that in that final day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, God gets the glory and we get the good things. Do you trust the providence of God enough to believe that in 2018, 19, 20, 200, 245? Eternity? The book of Esther stands to remind us that God is providentially behind the scenes, behind the camera. When things are hard, when we are burdened and confused, He's back there sovereignly, providentially directing things as God. Because when the last scene is filmed and all the actors gather at the conclusion of the movie, the director will have things his way. And he will end the show having worked all things for our good and for the glory that is his alone. That will happen. Guaranteed. So when you don't feel it, when you're ten feet deep in the water and the seaweed's wrapped around your head, You cry out like Jonah did, salvation is from the Lord. Trust His providence, church. Let's pray. God, I do not, I do not understand how You do what You do. I do understand why You do what You do. You do what You do for my good and for Your glory for my good and for your glory. All things. All things. All things. Drunk kings, disobedient wives, power-mad rulers, revelers at a six-month party. God, it was all being directed by you to put somebody else in as queen so that your plan would continue. 
God, may we see with spiritual eyes your providence in the book of Esther. And God, please, may we see your providence in our lives. And may we trust you to do what only you can do and give you the glory that you deserve. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, stand and receive a benediction. And as we dismiss, normally I would say stay and eat with us. Well, stay and eat with us, yeah. But stay and party with us, hang out with us, play with us, sing with us, whatever we're going to do. Who knows? You know, We're not going to be here six months, but uh, we'll be here till about midnight or so. And you all are welcome. So, and drinks are on the house. Open bar back there. Okay. <laughs> We've got the fine vessels ready. No compulsion. No compulsion. Let it be written. Okay? Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Stay if you can, please.